This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The Bengai cardinal fish is a small, beautiful marine aquarium fish that was discovered twice, rose quickly in popularity, but now has an uncertain future. What do we know about this fish, and what can be done to save it? My guest today, Rhett Talbot, is an award-winning writer and photojournalist with nearly 20 years of experience covering stories from exotic locales including Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Rhett frequently reports on the marine aquarium trade, has co-authored The Complete Idiot's Guide to Saltwater Aquariums, and is a senior editor at Coral Magazine. Most recently, Talbot served as the embedded journalist with the Interdisciplinary Expedition to Indonesia. Join us as Rhett discusses the plight of the Bengai cardinal fish. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Rhett Talbot, journalist, teacher, outdoorsman, and guide. Thanks again for talking with us today, Rhett. Thanks, Roy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've had a pretty wild career just getting to know you a little better over the past couple months um, as a mountaineering and fly fishing guide, a freelance writer, and an English teacher. And uh, definitely was great being part of the Bangai Rescue Project with you. We'll talk more about that, of course, later. It's obvious that aquatic life has been a major part of your life. Can you tell us about your first fish in your first aquarium? Absolutely. It was actually my grandfather who was the same one who instilled a passion for fly fishing in me, which is another major passion in my life. Uh, He was the one who kept aquaria and he was the one who role modeled a love for all things aquatic for me when I was just a kid. Growing up, we always had freshwater tanks in the house. Um, Nothing spectacular, but uh, fish were were always part of the gig. When I went away to high school, I went to a a high school in New York called Millbrook School, which actually has an AZA-accredited zoo on campus. And uh, that's where I really began to learn about husbandry and became very interested in a hobby, I guess, in more of an advanced hobbyist capacity. Finally, when I had my first apartment, that's when I really got serious about it on my own and started down the road of cichlids, which occupied many tanks in my first apartment. And then I moved on to archer fish and finally eventually became interested in marine aquaria. So you definitely worked with a lot of different varieties of fish. And uh, it sounds like your um, high school gave you quite a bit of experience early on, which is great. You've also done a lot of work since then uh, with 
Aquaria and uh, education. What led you and your wife to work on the, the Complete Idiot's Guide to Saltwater Aquariums? That was a fun project. I was, um, I was doing some collaboration work with a friend of mine, Mark Martin from Blue Zoo Aquatics, which is an online retailer. And uh, it got to the point where the two of us had created so much content that it just made sense to turn it into a book. So I proposed the idea to Mark um, sort of off the cuff one day. He liked the idea. I took it to the first publisher that I thought of, which was Penguin, who owns the Complete Idiot Guide series. And um, they loved it. And they uh, bought the book. Without Karen's knowledge initially, I submitted her illustrations for a review and they went ahead and hired her for the job. And, uh, and the result was, was the book, which we're pretty proud of. So uh, she was okay with that kind of behind her back sort of thing? You know, she's a fantastic artist and she had always <laughs> been very tentative about sharing her work publicly. So I knew it was going to be like pulling teeth to get her to submit it. So I submitted it for her and, um, and they loved it. No, that's great. So... Going on to Coral Magazine, then, how how did you become involved with that magazine and what was your role there? So as a writer, my career had never really intersected with my hobby, um, my interest in Aquaria, until the Bangai Cardinal Fish issue popped up in 2008, I think that was. At the time, I, had, I was friendly with a U.S. editor and publisher of Coral Magazine, James Lawrence, and we'd been discussing a lot of issues um, about fisheries, about aquarium fisheries, and how they were similar to issues in other fisheries about which I was writing professionally at the time. And uh, when the call came out to go ahead and ban wild-caught Bengay cardinal fish at MACNA, I found it very interesting that all of the aquarium media, all the hobby media was picking up on the story and calling for the ban, but we weren't really hearing anything from fisheries managers in Indonesia or fishers or others involved in the Bengay fishery on the ground in Indonesia. So I, for one, wanted to hear that story, and I pitched the idea to James, and James gave me the nod, and I went ahead and did an interview with Gayatri of the Indonesian Nature Foundation, or LINI, and uh, that became my first byline in Coral. And uh, we took a lot of heat for that article, but I thought it was important, and I continue to think it's important to understand that when we're discussing various resource extraction industries, not just the aquarium trade, but, but other industries as well, when we're discussing these resource extraction industries in the developing world, it's important to understand that sustainability needs to take into account socioeconomic sustainability, the, the very people-focused aspect of sustainability, in addition, obviously, to environmental sustainability. So, uh, so that's, that's basically a long answer of how I got involved with working for Coral Magazine. Okay. Well, it definitely dovetails into the topic at hand, which is the Bengay cardinal fish. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Were you pretty familiar with this fish before you started working on this project? I was. As both an aquarist, I had kept the fish and, and also professionally as someone who has been following just about everything that's been written about the fish since, um, since 2008. So I was fairly familiar with it. How did you, as a you know, writer and a photojournalist and uh, even a guide, how did you prepare yourself for this trip? Well, <laughs> a couple hours before I left for the airport, I packed pretty much the smallest bag I could and cleaned my gear and uh, got on an airplane. <laughs> so that's um, preparing for a trip for me, you know, in all seriousness, actually, it takes a lot, of, um, a lot of effort and a lot of forethought. A lot of work goes into preparing for it. Obviously, I want to have as much information on board from as many different vantage points as possible before I get into the field so that I'm uh, as ready as possible to take advantage of whatever opportunity might present itself. Making sure my equipment is in tip-top shape, as I just said, is critically important as, you know, when you're working as a photojournalist, 
there's little time to fidget with your gear or orchestrate a shot in the field. So you want to make sure that your, your gear is going to be reliable. And as you alluded to um, in the intro, I used to be a mountaineering guide, and that is by far the best preparation for all of the trips that I do like this. That really taught me that whether you're at 20,000 feet on a glacier or in a canoe in the remote Bengay archipelago, knowing from experience that you can make do with what you're carrying on your back, that's a huge advantage. So can you describe what the Bengay cardinal fish actually looks like for our listeners and where it comes from? Yeah, it's an incredibly unique and beautiful fish. And for anyone who has not seen it, go to Google right now, type in Bengay cardinal fish and uh, take a look at it. It's just a stunning fish. For people that haven't seen it, it's a striking fish in its appearance because it has these bold silver and black vertical striping with these brilliant white spots. And then it's got this sweeping sort of tassel dorsal fin and a wildly uh, forked caudal fin or tail fin. So it's just a remarkably attractive fish to look at. But um, I think anyone who's spent any time with this fish who's observed in the wild or kept in an aquaria will also point to its personality as being pretty important. Even the most hardened scientist that I've talked to about the fish is pretty hard-pressed to say that it is not uh, not a personable fish. So when you say personable, what do you uh, mean exactly? They just they seem to almost interact with you. They've got these huge eyes, and they, um, they seem to be curious, uh, a little bit nervous, but curious. And, um, and when, especially in an aquaria, once they get acclimated and well-situated, they're just, at least mine are, always front and center, just sort of bopping around with this cool little pulsing motion. And they're just, um, you know, people, when they look at a big reef tank, you know, they might initially be drawn to the big flashy fishes, but if they're bang guys in there, people will inevitably be drawn to them and really want to spend some time face-to-face with them. So how long has the scientific and the aquarium communities known about and appreciated this fish? The first known intersection between science and the species was when a Swedish zoologist collected two specimens in, I think it was 1919 or 1920. He was on an expedition to Indonesia. Because that zoologist's professional focus migrated from that of a naturalist to that of an ethnographer, nothing really became of most of the natural history specimens he brought back with him from Indonesia, but they were duly cataloged and put away in a museum. And then it wasn't until 1934 when an ichthyologist came across the preserved specimens and he actually described it in the scientific literature for the first time and named the fish in honor of the Swedish zoologist. But then the Bengay cardinal fish kind of disappeared again And it really wasn't until 1992 when Jerry Allen saw a photograph of the fish. And, uh, you know, from there, the rest is kind of history. It is definitely an amazing and beautiful fish. And, you know, I've I've observed it as well in uh, in Aquarian, and I I agree with you. Um, So getting, I guess, to the the big picture for our entire discussion, what are the major problems with the Bengay cardinal fish and the trade? Uh, how long do you have? <laughs> the, uh, the problems are many. You know, like I said, it's a very unique fish, but many of these problems are actually emblematic of the trade. So although it's a unique fish, many of the issues that we see with the fish are pretty prevalent throughout the trade, which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in studying and writing about this fish. If you want to talk specifics, you know, supply chain transparency is a huge one. It's very difficult to know how these fish are actually getting from the fishery to the marketplace. Destroy Destructive fishing practices play a major role here. Not that bangais are being caught with cyanide, but there's certainly cyanide use in their endemic range, and it's pretty prevalent there. And there's also dynamite fishing and other destructive fishing practices which are impacting the animal's habitat. Overfishing is a major problem, largely because 
the fishery is not being managed based on scientific data, and um, and it's a fish that's particularly susceptible to overcollection. And then just simply straight up illegal fishing is a major issue for the species. So, you know, I don't mean to sort of say that, you know, the fishery is just a complete mess and there's no hope for it. Um, many people have worked very hard to better manage this fishery. But the reality is the vast majority of Bengay cardinal fish that are exported from Indonesia today are essentially illegal if you take a look at what the government's uh, own regulations say. Okay, well, big picture then. Tell us about the Bengay Rescue Project, including, I guess, the major all, overall goals given the many issues associated with this fish. Sure. Yeah, uh, Bengay Rescue is uh, it's a big project, and it's a project that really, at its most elemental, is about information. You know, it's about us hopefully better understanding the issues that surround the species. It's about giving aquarists the information that they need to be able to make better purchasing decisions. And then certainly in the case of advanced aquarists, it's about helping them to make decisions about which species they may want to work in more depth in terms of you know breeding or, or other things. A big part of Bengai Rescue is about better understanding BCIV, the virus, and trying to get a handle on where it is originating and what is causing fishes to become symptomatic. And then from what I've said earlier, obviously, I'm very interested in the sustainability issues, including the socioeconomic sustainability of local fishers and, uh, and fisher communities in the Bengai Islands. So take all of that, and the goal is to get all that information and put it into a book that's really accessible to your average uh, aquarist, diver, reef enthusiast, whoever it might be that, that's interested in, in reading this, and um, put it together in a book that's going to be richly illustrated and will hopefully be a really important landmark in the ongoing dialogue about this species. That definitely sounds like a, a major undertaking. Now, how did the idea for the project come into being? The credit really has to go to James Lawrence, the editor and publisher of Coral. James started talking to me about this idea uh, last year at some point. And um, I think what he said to me initially was that he wanted to do something important for the hobby and for the trade. And, uh, you know, he wasn't prepared to lose his shirt over it, but it was also a project that the primary objective would not be financial. So really trying to do something that would be beneficial to the hobby and the trade. So you mentioned finances. How was this funded? The project was funded through the crowdfunding source Kickstarter, which is I had had some experience with prior to Bengai Rescue. We set a goal of raising about $25,000 in a month. And uh, the way Kickstarter works is that you either have to raise all your money or if you don't reach your goal, then you don't get any of the money. So it was a little bit of a risk for us to sort of you know, attempt to fund the book through this crowdfunding mechanism. But we were just absolutely blown away at how receptive the aquarium community, divers, other people were to this project. And, um, you know, we raised $33,000 in, in about a month. It was really cool. That's pretty amazing. So just curious, how, do you, how did you come up with a month as a, uh, a time frame to raise that much money? It seems like a, a relatively short amount of time. Part of it had to do with our own time frame. We knew we wanted to. Um, we knew that an important part of this project was putting an expedition on the ground in Indonesia, and we knew that we wanted to launch the book in a relatively short period of time. So, we really didn't have a lot of time to play with. But in addition to that, Kickstarter also recommends that uh, you make your your fundraising period short, and they recommend really a month as being an ideal amount of time to generate enthusiasm, get the momentum going, get the money in hand, and then get going with the project. Okay. Have you gotten to know any of the supporters? 
I have. Yeah, it's been really fun. I travel around the country a lot speaking about the trade and um, in almost every single speaking engagement that I've had since we launched the Kickstarter campaign, I've been approached by one or more of the donors and they've talked to me about you know why they decided to get involved in the project and how excited they are. So that's been really encouraging. It's also really humbling, especially um, with some of our larger donors, people who have really given a significant amount of money to this project in the hopes that, you know, that we can collect this information and, and get it out there to the aquarium audience in a timely fashion and, and create a book that hopefully will not only benefit the species and the fishers in the Bangai Archipelago, but will also benefit the marine aquarium trade in general. It is definitely great and uh, heartening to, to hear all the interest in you know this one small fish. We'll talk a little bit more about the journey into Indonesia and some of the things you found out. Uh, but first, let's take a short break. We'll continue our discussions with my guest, journalist Rhett Talbot, after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, journalist Red Talbot. So, Red, I think we have to dive into Indonesia now. We've talked a little bit about the fish and a lot about the prep work. So who um, is involved with the project and who was over there in Indonesia working on this? Um, the team is, is, actually, uh, is actually quite large, so I hope I don't forget anyone, but if I do, please forgive me in advance. James Lawrence is, as I mentioned before, he's our editor and publisher, and he's, um, he's certainly uh, one of the foundation people for the team. Matt Peterson, a name that probably needs not a lot of introduction for a lot of aquarists. He's a senior editor at Coral and a well-known fish breeder. And he's been working with the project uh, from the start with a focus on developing and, and writing a set of comprehensive uh, home breeding protocols. Then we've got, of course, Dr. Matt Wittenrich, Dr. Tom Walzak, and yourself, Roy, who were comprised the U.S.-based scientist um, that went to Indonesia, and they worked alongside our Indonesian scientific counterparts, Yunaldi Yaya of Lini and uh, Mr. Zafron from the Gondol Research Institute for Mariculture, which is uh, located in, in Bali. And that part of the team, the U.S.-based scientists, along with their Indonesian counterparts, were working primarily on the virus-related issues. Gayatri, who we already discussed, was an invaluable member of the team, and remains so um, in terms of helping us to coordinate our efforts in Indonesia and sharing her in-depth experience with both the fishery itself and then the fishers. She's been working on the ground in the Benga Islands for, for quite some time. And then there's been a variety of other people who have really helped out as team members um, and continue to be instrumental in part. I'm thinking of people like Craig Watson of the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Lab. Bengai District fish quarantine investigator Mohammed Zamrud, and perhaps most notably um, Dr. Jerry Allen, who is uh, the advisor for the book and is also writing the foreword for us. 
Oh, and I forgot, Karen Talbot, my wife, and renowned scientific illustrator that she is, and painter of fishes, um, she's doing the illustrations for the book. That would have been a bad one to forget. I was going to say, yeah, it's good you remember it. She's doing a stunning job. She actually is doing some really beautiful Bengai illustrations. Oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing those. So I guess getting back to Indonesia now, where in Indonesia can this fish be found? The fish is located in a very small area, uh, relatively speaking. It's off the east coast of Sulawesi, central Sulawesi, in an island group called the Banga Islands. And um, it's a pretty remote part of Indonesia, not a part where you'll see a lot of tourist or tourist infrastructure. And uh, it's, it's really kind of off the beaten track. What type of habitat does this fish kind of prefer? Well, the Bengai cardinal fish, um, everyone knows about the urchin mountains. Um, in fact, many people have speculated that the black and silver striping is in part to help the juveniles settle down into the spines of spiny sea urchins to be able to camouflage and get protection from them. So most people are familiar that Bengai cardinal fish associate with uh, spiny sea urchins. But I think most people have been pretty surprised by some of the photographs we've uh, posted on the Bengai Rescue Facebook page and through our blog and other places of the variety of other invertebrates with which the Bengai cardinal fish has, we observe them hosting everything from coral to anemones. Of course, you know, we expected this. Um, It's well described in literature. There's nothing new here. But I think we were somewhat surprised, or at least I know Matt and I had a conversation, Matt Wittenrich and I had a conversation about this at one point with observing um, some Bengais that appear to simply be living amongst the seagrasses with no obvious host nearby. So, you know, who knows what that was about, but that was interesting to us. And if anyone wants to see some of these pictures of just the the wide variety of hosts with which this fish associates, do check out the Bengai Rescue Facebook page. So how is this fish collected by the local fishers? Yeah, actually, let me back up one sec, because sure. in, regard to, um, in regard to where the fish lives, and you know, I said it's found off the east coast of Sulawesi, and at what kind of habitat it lives in, one thing I didn't mention is that it's almost always found in shallow habitats, um, shallow habitats that are near to shore. And, um, and this fish, the fishery, I think it's really important for people to understand, and this is a, a point that, again, Matt Wittenrich really drove home, and there's a whole blog entry about it on our blog, this fish is endemic to an area that can pretty much be covered by a speedboat in a single day. So this is very unusual for a reef-associated fish to occupy such a small region. And the reason for this, of course, is because the fish is a mouth brooder and the fish really doesn't have the ability to be able to disperse itself widely like many other uh, reef fishes that have a pelagic larval stage. So that makes this fish, um, you know, limited to this very small range. And that range, if you take a look at it on Google Earth, if you look at the ocean, you'll see that it's pretty much surrounded by deep water. So it's kind of this little Bengai cardinal fish island. Just for some of the listeners that may not be familiar with the reproduction, can you uh, just maybe briefly describe what the mouth brooder, what, what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. In, in layman's terms, this is a fish that holds its young in its mouth throughout a period of time up to a month. And then it will release the fish. And so those young fish will really never go more than, you know, maybe a couple hundred meters away from, if even that, will never go very far away from the parent population. So you have a fish that unlike, let's say, a yellow tang, which has this pelagic larval stage where the little larval fishes get tossed into the currents and might get swept hundreds or thousands of miles to settle on a reef 
far, far away. The Bengay cardinal fish, you know, this little young fish is going to live its life for all intents and purposes right on top of where its parents lived its life. So if we wipe out these individual or if these populations are wiped out, there's really not a great mechanism for this species to be able to redisperse itself or repopulate areas. Except for maybe people moving them around. Well, that's a huge issue and that's something we're addressing (laughs) big time in the book. So how is it collected for our listeners just to give them an idea? Well, the species is, um, it's as far as we saw and as far as we've heard and, and read in the literature, the species is collected um, solely through net collection. I think it was interesting to those of us who have done a lot of research and reading about the history of the fishery, which is a relatively young fishery. It was interesting for us to learn that some of those collection techniques have changed um, in recent years, and we'll be describing that pretty extensively in the book. But uh, bottom line is the fish are usually collected by net. They're usually held either in small groupings or in net pens before they're then transferred to a trader who will then take them to a middleman who will then sell them to an export facility and then they will make their way to wherever their final destination may be. So you talked a little bit about the trade route kind of indirectly through that answer and uh, I, I know those are definitely another kind of maze. What light can you shed on how this fish gets from the wild in Indonesia to uh, your local U.S. retail store? Well, you know, I I don't want to go into too much detail about this now, but it certainly is a significant component of the book. Our research into the various supply chains is ongoing. Um, I just had two interviews this morning, one with someone in Indonesia and one with somebody in Los Angeles. And so our, our research is ongoing and it can be very tricky. You know, everything from issues surrounding the legality of these fish to just basic politics and the trade, it's difficult to really suss out and understand the way all these supply chains work. But it's something we absolutely, I think, need to do if we really want to reform and and try to move this fishery to where it it needs to be. I can say with confidence that the majority of Bengay cardinal fish reaching the market in North America certainly are illegal fish. You know, I hope that's shocking and alarming to your listeners. It was certainly shocking and alarming to us when we learned that while we were, were in Indonesia. But um, it's a fishery that's very difficult to really understand the way the fishes are moving and the different vectors from fishery to market. So how is the Indonesian government and how are conservation organizations like Linia approaching the status of this fish? Well, you know, we're very fortunate. Bengai Rescue and specifically the scientific team that included um, Roy and Tom and, and Matt and then our Indonesian counterparts, we're very fortunate to be working closely with a number of Indonesian government and conservation agencies and organizations. There's a lot of talk about the Bengai cardinal fish in Indonesia right now, and that's a good thing. I don't want to jeopardize anything that might be going on behind the scenes right now by talking out of school, but I am very hopeful that we're going to see some changes in the way the Bengai cardinal fish fishery is managed. And that's really important. It's important for the species itself. It's important for the local fishers and fisher communities, and it's important for the trade for a variety of reasons, not least of which is is the virus. And I know I've mentioned the virus a couple of times. You're probably in a much better position, Roy, to be able to give us the skinny on, on the virus and what our concerns are. Sure. Well, with the virus, there are uh, a number of species of marine fish that are infected with a similar type virus. It's uh, it's called a, an aridovirus, and specifically the scientific genus for this particular virus is megalocytovirus. And there are quite a few very closely related viruses that are, affect a lot of different marine fish as well as some freshwater fish. And with the Bengay cardinal aridovirus, there is concern because a lot of the fish in the U.S. appear to have some mortalities in, in various 
areas of the uh, trade that appear to be linked to this virus. So there's ongoing work um, going on with, with our partners in Indonesia as well as here in the U.S., a number of uh, our colleagues as well as we are all really interested in that. And obviously for the sustainability of the, of the trade, it will be really important. So um, about the trip again, um, I guess what surprised you most during the trip or is it some of the things you already mentioned or were there any other kind of surprises? Huh. Well, I mean, you spend a month in Indonesia and you're going to have a lot of surprises. <laughs> I think from an aquarium-related standpoint, from a trade standpoint, I knew that Sinai collection was still an issue in Indonesia. I think that's, you know, that's not terribly shocking news. But I don't think I was prepared for how much Sinai collection, as well as other destructive fishing practices, is occurring right now in Indonesia on a daily basis. Based on my research, based on the interviews I did, based on the fishers I fished with, I think it's fair to say that cyanide use has probably increased in Indonesia in the past decade. And part of that is for the aquarium trade, and part of that is for the live food fish trade. And I certainly didn't expect to see that. I knew it was still going to be there, but I thought, you know, hopefully, as seems to be the case in Philippines, I hope that maybe we are really seeing cyanide getting phased out, but it seems to be just very prevalent in Indonesia. Well, that's definitely uh, something to be a uh, concern, and hopefully we'll have, there'll be some changes for that. What were some of your more, uh, I guess, memorable moments, if you had any good uh, things that stand out in your head? Well, you know, for me on these trips, I go there to study the fish, usually, or the coral or the fishery. But for me, when I, when I think back to the trips and I think about my memories, um, it's almost always about the people. So, you know, I think back to this trip and I think about um, the young men of Boney Baru who made fried bananas for us one night and played their guitar. Actually, I remember you playing the guitar too, Roy. Very impressive. (laughs) Uh, But I remember, you know, the boy who gave me the uh, beautifully carved and ornately painted Bengay Cardinal Fish necklace. And certainly, you know, just the the graciousness of all the people who received us into their homes. You know, that was just just remarkable. And, you know, of course, I have to to actually see a fish that I've spent so much of my professional life over the past couple of years thinking about, writing about, researching, to actually see it in the wild, that definitely sticks with me. Oh, and uh, Dr. Wittenrich vomiting in a snorkel. That's certainly memorable. (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) Oh, sure, sure. Man, I'm sure we'll be happy to know that you mentioned it. So that was memorable. (laughs) So um, how about aquaculture? You know, we've talked about aquaculture in other areas. Uh, How about aquaculture for this species? Yeah, I mean, I think aquaculture, big thumbs up. You know, if people are familiar with my work, they know that, you know, sort of my standard response regarding aquaculture and the trade is that I believe that the future of the marine aquarium trade will be based on hopefully sustainable marine aquarium, wild fisheries, and a whole lot more aquaculture. In regard to the Bengay cardinal fish, it's um, really been good and heartening to see so many captive bred Bengay cardinal fishes available on the market, thanks largely to Quality Marine, the LA-based importer and wholesaler that's been bringing them in, and then to retailers like Live Aquaria that have been making the, these animals available you know, to any aquarist anywhere in the United States who wants them. So that's been a really good thing. And I should clarify, actually, because I hear something going through my head from what I said a minute ago. Go. I said the you know vast majority of Bengay cardinal fish on the market now are illegal. I was referring to wild caught fishes in that case. These uh, captive bred Bengay cardinal fishes are certainly very legal. 
so I'm really heartened to see that we have some businesses ramping up to commercial scale and being able to provide consistent supply of what appear to be healthy and good-looking Bengay cardinal fish to the market. Anecdotally, I'm somewhat disheartened that these fish are not being as well received by Aquarius as I had hoped. I guess what I hope that Bengay Rescue and you know more dialogue about this fish, about the species and the issues that surround it, I hope that that will allow Aquarius to maybe push Aquarius to make the purchasing decisions that are necessary to really shape the future of truly sustainable and robust marine aquarium trade. Yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe a lot of it has to also go to education by the, the wholesalers and retailers. Absolutely. Um, and so what can our listeners do to help the situation, if anything, I guess, especially in, in uh, regards to the wild-caught band guys that are um, available? Well, I think, I mean, my advice Back in 2008, after I did that initial interview with Gayatri and started writing about the Bengay cardinal fish, my advice then was, you know, I don't think at that time, I didn't think the ban, the way it was currently being called for, was necessarily the best course of action. But I did advise Aquarius that I think we really need to be careful about taking any more of these fish from the wild until we have a much better handle on the fishery, until we know how the fishery is being managed and what the true impact is on these fishes. So that's a, you know, I think listeners can use their purchasing power to, you know, hopefully purchase cultured Bengay cardinal fish at this point and to give some motivation to try to better understand the fishery and better understand you know, what can be done to make this fishery more sustainable um, over the long term. You know, as we've said a bunch of times already in this interview, the issues are many and they are incredibly complex, but better fisheries management based on sound scientific data is an absolute must for this fish. And Aquarius can push for that. Aquarius can, you know, they can say before we buy more wild-caught Bengay cardinal fish, we want to understand better. We want to know that knowledgeable fisheries managers have real-time management and enforcement ability in this fishery. So, you know, I think that's the best thing they can do. Use your purchasing power to support a sustainable aquarium trade. Okay. And definitely educate yourself or, and, and maybe push for more transparency or education in the, uh, on the retail and wholesale end. I guess the last question before we have to close up for the day, when and where will the book be available? Well, we are planning to launch the book at MACNA in Dallas at the end of September, which is remarkably soon, which is why I should probably get back to writing. But that's where the book will first be available, and then it will be available online for all the most current information about where to get the book, um, how to get the book. Check out the Facebook page, bangairescue.com. Like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bangairescue. And uh, you can certainly find more information on Kickstarter as well, where we continue to update our backers. But that's the plan. End of September, Dallas Magna, the book will be available, and uh, then it should be widely available for sale after that, both um, in your local fish store and also online. That sounds great. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks very much to our guest, Rhett Talbot, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Rhett, did you have any final words of wisdom or, or info that would be useful for our listeners? Well, I don't know if I have wisdom or info, but, um, but it's been a real pleasure. And, um, you know, I think that I think that what you're doing and what this show is doing is just so important. As a person who writes about the marine aquarium trade, my primary motivation is to you know, get information and get transparency to the aquarists so that they can use that information to make purchasing decisions that you know, support the type of trade they'd like to see. And so I think the more that the marine aquarium media can do to report on these types of stories, the more that your show can do to highlight these types of stories. You know, We all love the article on the newest and best piece of equipment or the cool new fish but uh, these types of stories are absolutely essential as well so thank you for giving 
getting a forum for this discussion. No, no, thank you, Rhett. No, so, no. <laughs> thanks again, Red, for joining us. Please be sure to check out Red's web pages. The links will be on Aquarium Mania on his guest page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D R R O Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely keep an eye out for the Bangai Rescue. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.